This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Who should be operating our LRT? Would you like to see the HSR do it or Metrolinx does it? Uh, both, in a sense, I guess, public uh, companies. It's just which umbrella do you want to come under? Uh, on Facebook, William says, I'm not against privac- uh, privatization per se. I am against Metrolinx. They have zero success track record and couldn't properly run a two-car funeral. Uh, they are home for a liberal bagman to receive millions of dollars a year, executive positions, nothing more. Vince Runtz, good luck to Matthew Green. The HSR is being sold out on Pitiful. Uh, Vince Wright also writes, maybe Mr. Green will turn his attention to my issue, the HSR and the bus route that goes down uh, an inner street in his ward. Noise, pollution, big safety factor. Guess it's not big enough fish to fry. <laughs> Uh, Chris writes, why can't they put a bin in to run the system like everybody else? And if they win, great. All right. Uh, we'll get Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton, talking about this. First, let's bring in Eric Tuck, president of the ATU Local 107, on the line with us now. Hello, Eric. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, what is it exactly that you're looking for, and why do you think HSR will do a better job of it than Metrolinx? So, it's, uh, to be honest with you, Scott, it's not really a debate or whether HSR or Metrolinx would do a better job. The reality is Metrolinx's current uh, procurement practice is to contract out to a third party, and that's a private consortium which uh, basically uh, has not worked out. We've tried 3Ps across uh, Europe and North America. they failed miserably, and I want to stop this train before it, it gets too far down the track. Um, I know a lot of people are critical of our timing on this, but the reality is we've approached Metrolinx and the Prime uh, Premier's office uh, long before this and asked for this discussion. We were told that, you know, we really can't discuss any of that until we get to the operating agreement. We've we've passed the and we passed the environmental assessment. The environmental assessment, as you know, has been passed, and now we would like to have that discussion. So, uh, so uh, those that have commented, why now? Obviously, they've been. You're making it sound like they've been putting you off until now. Is the time to do that? Absolutely. Metrolink's lying to everybody as we've been negotiating and we're talking. And the reality is, we've had zero meetings with Metrolink's uh, on this issue. We asked from the day that the announcement was made. I, I asked the premier. I sent her a letter within a week of that announcement, asking for this meeting and asking to have this discussion long ago. Unfortunately, the politics of it, uh, we were put off and put off. We did not get a response from uh, uh, Stephen Del Duca, the transportation minister, uh, until about a week and a half ago when we launched our campaign. And people started signing our petition and sending emails. Uh, coincidentally enough, we got a call from his office saying that he's willing to meet near the end of July. And I'm looking forward to that meeting. Um, but, you know, the, those who are criticizing our timing, that's the reason for it. So who can run it better? Quite frankly, the Hamilton Street Railway has provided this city with safe, efficient, uh, one of the most efficient transit systems uh, in North America. We've done it for well over a century. I believe we can. And, and not that Hamilton Street Railway is not uh, without its critics or its fault. Uh, the reality is any problems we've had with HSR were generated by decisions that council has made or decisions that were made by senior management within the city. Is that, on, is that not all the better reason to keep it out of the hands of the HSR? Uh, I wouldn't say that, quite frankly. If you want to fix that problem, let's not just fix it for the uh, LRT. Let's fix it for the whole transit system here in Hamilton. Uh, If you really want to go down that road, then I think we need to look at a transit commission, and maybe that's an option. 
uh, I'm more than willing to open my mind to. But the reality is uh, the uh, Hamilton Street Railway and the Amalgamated Transit Union is the ones who are best situated to operate it. Whether they should be managed by the city or a transit commission, I believe that's the discussion for the next municipal election. Um, so really what you're looking for, Eric, is a chance to put a bid in like everyone else, or are you looking to control it? So unfortunately, we don't even get that option. No, but is that what you're looking, is that what you're trying to get? Is that what you're looking for? We would like the opportunity to operate and maintain the system. We believe we are the best situated uh, to do that. Uh, for the citizens of Hamilton, and we have a proven track record to do that. So if the rules are changed, are you prepared to bid like everyone, every other company? Absolutely. So all you want to do is be a part of... We believe of- HSR is in a position to bid on the operating and maintaining, but we cannot bid on the build and design because that's a whole... Uh, in itself is, is very questionable about why, it does, why it's being done. It's simply being done to take the money or the debt off the books of the Liberal government. It's not being done to, you know, provide a more efficient service for the citizens of Hamilton. Uh, you bring up a valid point. They're paying for it. Doesn't that, doesn't that hold some weight here? Well, hold it. Who's paying for it? We are. There's only one taxpayer. I don't. Yeah, know I know. I know. But but, yeah, federal. but but yeah. But that's one taxpayer. But Eric, that's somebody not. Who's worked since he was 16? Why does he always talk over me like this? Eric, that money is spent, I should have a say. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. No, I, I just you know uh, you know again when I'm asking you a question, you're talking about redesigning the whole system. That's not what we're here to do. And if we go down that route, nothing will ever get done. What we're trying to do is deal with the issue that's at hand here, and that is who is best qualified to run the HSR, or sorry, to run the uh, the LRT system. The is LRT. it MetroLink or is it HSR? Uh, you know, uh, again, for the reasons you know, Ryan McGreal from Raise the Hammer said the exact opposite that you said about the HSR that they've proven that they can't do it over time, so therefore don't deserve a chance at this project. So why is it that the same things that slow that wouldn't slow you down from running a great system within the city of Hamilton won't slow you down from running the LRT system in Hamilton? They're still the same problems. Okay, so when you introduce privatization to a transit system. Transit systems are not designed to turn a profit. I think we all agree on that. And If you look at any transit system in North America, none of them turn a profit. So what you are doing is you are turning a public service into a profit uh, providing for shareholders. You're adding that cost. And if you look at the 2014 Auditor General's report, the Kitchener-Waterloo uh, um, development, costs over $50 million more to go through the 3P process. So this really is about, one, ensuring the taxpayers are getting the best value for their dollar and the most efficient system that they can, and two, to make sure that the local control remains in the hands of the people who actually use the system. It shouldn't be some private company, and you can say they have a contract with Metrolink and they have to honor that contract. The reality is we've seen time and time again with these three Ps, when they don't work out, they end up either running the system into the ground. That's what happened all across Europe and North America. If you remember, they tried this back in the uh, Margaret Thatcher days right across Europe. They tried to run the subways private. They ran them into the ground. It ended up costing the taxpayers a whole lot of money to get that system back up to meet the standards that were needed to provide the service that was supposed to be happening. Did we lose them? The profit. Oh, there you go.
so if 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 transit systems aren't designed to turn a profit, uh, then how do we expand them? Where does the money come from? Because we so, don't we don't have the you know we don't have the cake for an LRT. So again, if if they don't turn a profit, then then we're paying for it. Correct, and we are paying for it. And there's there's no hiding the fact that the taxpayers are paying. There is a portion that comes from the people who use the system, but there's also a portion that comes from the tax base as well as the gas revenue tax. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the end, we are all paying for a system just like we pay for garbage to be picked up, just like we pay for any other services, our water, uh, our hydro, which... uh, we all seen how privatization worked out for hydro, and we're going down. Yeah, but you know, there's an, there's another Eric. There's another great example. You know, uh, we're, you know, and the NDP will say this. We all see where privatization has taken hydro. Well, again, go back ten, twenty, thirty, forty years. The government is not putting money into the system because to get elected, they don't want to do that. So then, all of a sudden, we find ourselves with a system that is inadequate. Quit and we need private funds to get it back to where it was. So again, the same thing that I would say to Andrea Horvath on the issue of the privatization of the electricity, if the government system was doing a great job of running it, we wouldn't have got to where we are. This, again, uh, this comes back to holding those elected officials accountable for the decisions that they make. The reality is... Uh, yeah, but at the end of the day, nobody wants to see their taxes go up, so the government puts it off. They punt it down the road, just the same way the wind government has done with our electricity file. They punt it down the road. And right. then, then you're wondering why the system has failed. Well, because the public system, the public running the public system, they're trying... It's not about making money for them. It's about getting votes. So they're not spending the money in order to get reelected. So again, we got to where we are with electricity because governments didn't put enough money into them. Therefore, we needed privatization to bail them out. It's the same thing here. So what difference does it make if you're running the LRT or if Metrolinx is running the LRT? There's still going to be deficiencies. So you're validating exactly what I'm saying. The wind, What the wind government did with the hydro is they're doing the exact same thing with privatization of transit. They're taking the routes that have the most uh, revenue generating and they're turning them over to a private consortium who is going out and borrowing the money. Yeah, but none of the governments just, did that. When the governments so were in The government can get that debt off their books and put it onto a private corporation, punt it down the field, and in the end, we pay more. That's the point you're missing. Well, no, 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 no. We're, pay, we're paying more for electricity, Eric, because... Kathleen Wynne signed some really bad deals that the Auditor General said we overpaid for by $37 billion. Again, if governments were putting money into these systems all along, going back to the NDP government, a conservative government, a liberal government, we've had them all. And again, they fail to put money into these systems, and then it's up to the private system to bail it out, when, when I don't think the public is running it any better than the private are. Really? Uh, on the point of having an NDP government, we actually we had an NDP slash liberal government because Bob Ray showed his true colors in the end. Well, having you know said, what? That is just a big pile of BS, Eric. I'm going to have to leave it there. Let's bring it. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Uh, Eric uh, Tuck has been joining us, President ATU Local 107. It wasn't really an NDP government. It was really a liberal government. Oh, my God. Can we stop picking teams and just do the best damn thing for the city? Forget your teams. Just get the work done. 
Man, oh man. Uh, let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor uh, city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Hello, Larry. How are you today? I am well, and I'm glad to see that you're not feisty at all. <laughs> Well, I just want to do what's best for the city, not who's one on, you know, not the people that are on that team or the people that are on that team or belong to that political party or that political party. Let's just do the best for the city here. Right. right. So who who does a better job? At, who will do a better job at running this, the HSR or Metrolinx? Well, you know what? At the end of the day, um, I think that, that uh, individuals work for private companies, they work for public companies, and they're the same individuals would adhere to whatever rules are established for them. So it's not about the individual. I think people who work for ATU, for example, or are members of ATU or for the city of Hamilton and are members of the ATU, they're good, good people. Uh, and, and there are people who work for private companies, and I'm sure LRTs are run by private individuals. They would be good, good people as well. If, for me, it's more about the process than about the individuals. And and I just caught the tail end of uh, of the interview with the president of ATU, and he's doing his job. His job is to protect, safeguard, and grow opportunities <clears throat> for his members. Mm-hmm. Councillors, on the other hand, their job is to protect the interests of the municipality in terms of providing service at an affordable cost and w- providing good working conditions for their employees as well. So that's all part of the mix. And my understanding is that the system that the city has agreed on is one that will allow different bids to come in as to who can do a better job in running the system at a a cost-efficient way, who can do an adequate and good job running the system at a cost-efficient way. And once all of these uh, pieces of information are in, then a decision will be made as to who actually gets to run it. It seems to me that the current motion that is being considered by Councillor Green uh, is uh, throws a spoke into the wheels of that well-oiled, by this point, uh, agreement. Uh, and it suggests, it shortcuts it, and suggests that all of the work needs to go to ATU and ATU members. Uh, and and that, that undercuts uh, and shortchanges the competitive process that we were going to go through to see who can do the the best job. I mean, so why are, can't we have? Uh, so right now, as it stands, is the HSR allowed to even bid on this? They're not, are they? Well, I you know I don't know the specifics of that, except that except that uh, what I've read in the paper and according to Paul Johnson, who is the LRT guru for the city of Hamilton, a very competent guy, by the way, um, he is suggesting that council has given direction that HSR, ATU be involved in a meaningful way in the process. So I think already the groundwork is being laid to make sure that jobs are not lost, that compensation is fair, all of those good things that unions need to be be cognizant of. But in this case, the union and the NDP government, remember this is being driven by Andrea Horvath and and her party, uh, and the union that has gone to a, a, a great lengths in terms of a public campaign 
to make sure that all the work is controlled by ATU and, and is subsumed into the ATU sort of uh, HSR. So is this about the HSR or making sure they're all in that union? Well, I, I think it's a combination of both. At least that's my reading of it. And again, you know, unions, you know, that's what they do. That's yeah. their job is to advocate for their employees. But but I'm saying that there needs to be a uh, an arbiter here, and that's City Council who ensures that the taxpayers are also looked after. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that if you give the work uh, to, to ATU that the taxpayers will not be looked after. But, a, you know, there, there's, there's a competitive aspect to this that tends to drive costs down as opposed to a sole-sourced um, uh, scenario that tends to, to, uh, to increase costs. And we've got examples of that in the city of Hamilton, by the way. Our, our garbage collection, our trash collection, is a hybrid model. Mm-hmm. There are employees of the city that do it. There are also private sector folks that do it. And, uh, and we hire, we give contracts to companies to do that. And both sides, I think it's, it's a 50-50 share uh, in, in the municipality as to who does what, uh, both sides sort of keep the other honest in terms of efficiency right. and cost uh, and cost uh, efficiency as well. So we've got a model for that, and and to sort of throw um, a spanner in the works at this stage is is probably counterproductive. And I can't think of any councillor that that doesn't support our local HSR and therefore by extension their union. But but really uh, to to sort of fix the game before the game or, or while the game is being developed uh, doesn't seem to make sense to me, at least. Uh, Eric Tuck said that the reason that the, the, for the delay of this is that they've been putting them off and say, no, none of this ever get, doesn't even get chatted about until we get to this stage after the environmental assessment. That's what he said is the reason for bringing it up now, is that they've been delaying him till now and saying now's the opportunity. Yeah, and so I can't comment on that because I'm not in on the internal discussions that are happening at City Hall. However, I mean, if you take, um, you know, the printed word at, at face value, it seems, I mean, even, even Councilor Marula, I cannot think of a, a more pro-union councillor, um, other than maybe Councilor Green, than Councilor Marula. Even he is skeptical about what's being proposed and the fact that it may jeopardize the bigger play here, which is, uh, LRT, as we know, it's been contentious, it's been lying dormant for a while, and maybe it should be allowed to to progress the way it is without without you know this this sort of late in the game uh, move by by the councillor, uh, and 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 that's the concern is that not only might it drive costs up, it might indeed jeopardize um, the whole project if you now have to renegotiate a memorandum of agreement. That you've already signed on to. It seems uh, it seems wrong from many perspectives. So, Larry, uh, there is cooperation in the sense that the both systems are trying to work together. But that being said, it doesn't appear like HSR will have the opportunity to bid on operation of this. So, I and that I don't know because when we did the and I was involved then when we did the the uh, the garbage uh, contract. Uh, we allowed the internal union to bid on the contract as well. Mm-hmm. And and that was by council dictate that that, that would happen. And as it turns out, uh, it was, you know, the service, uh, uh, the contracts were split 50-50. Uh, so I don't know whether they've considered that or whether they might consider that. Um, all I know is uh, from what I've read that, that ATU and, and HSR uh, has to be considered as part of the development of this but they are not to have been given, uh, uh, you know, the whole ball of wax 
um, uh, because there's a, a, an RFQ out right now, which is who's out there that can deliver the service. Let's qualify them, and then there will be an RFP process that is imminent as well. And, and you're jeopardizing that good process by now sort of saying that doesn't matter. Uh, we just want uh, it to go in one direction, that's towards HSR and ATU. And it seems to me that that would be uh, dangerous um, because it might upset the apple cart and jeopardize other parts of this program. And, um, and counselors have spoken out about that. I suspect that this motion will not pass. Um, so, but, but, you know, uh, stranger things have happened. Uh, uh, Eric said that, uh, you know, uh, transit systems are not designed to turn a profit. Uh, that being said, if they're not, why would private industry be interested in them? And how do we expand them or build onto them if we don't turn a profit? Where does the well, money come from? So, so you've got to define terms here very carefully. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's a transit system in the world that turns a profit. There are some that help pay towards the cost of running the system, uh, and the old formula we had in the city of Hamilton is that 50% uh, cost recovery, 50% sub- subsidized uh, uh, service. Uh, I don't know. I think that's probably changed. That that ratio has probably changed by now. So um, it, it, I don't think that that will change. I don't think we're looking at a system that will make money for the municipality, but maybe a system that will help pay hmm. towards that cost. But at the same time, as, as you're subsidizing the cost, whatever that ratio and formula happens to be, those who provide the service will obviously earn some money from doing it. doesn't mean that the service earns a profit, yeah. but that you know, part right. of the fee is to keep the company going. Because without that, obviously, uh, everything fails. Larry Deanna has been with us, former mayor of city of Hamilton, commenting on LRT and who should be running it. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The lawyer for the widow of the soldier that was killed by Omar Cotter has filed an application to see that any money that Canada gives Cotter goes to the widow and another injured soldier. Uh, Of course, what has happened uh, with this case is uh, Omar Cotter, who is a Canadian citizen, held in the U.S. military prison, uh, 15 years of age. Uh, and the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, Canada should have done more to pull him out of that prison, uh, considering, of course, uh, the uh, conditions of the prison and what was going on there, and that uh, Canada did, do, did not do enough to protect its own citizen. Uh, as a result, uh, Omar Khadr has been awarded just over $10 million and will receive an apology uh, from the Canadian government. As some have said, this seems to be rewarding bad behavior. However, you have to ask the question, how did this and why was this allowed to happen in the first place? Could the people of the day not see that this was the road we were heading down? Uh, To talk more about all of this, Hamilton attorney Jeffrey Reed is with us and on the line now. Hello, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Why did the Canadian government not see this predicament coming 10 years ago? Personally, I think that's a political question. I don't think it's a legal question because the Supreme Court found that uh, the uh, government really was a party to his oppressive uh, 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 um, in- imprisonment. And and the thing is, this isn't, in my opinion, at least as far as I, well, all I've got to say is, I'm not weighing in on one side or the other. 
it's a question of the rule of law. So we have laws. Uh, everybody, including governments, above all, have to comply with them. If nothing else, they have to set the example by complying with their own laws. And it was found that the Supreme Court said that the uh, circumstances under which he was being held in the United States, uh, for whatever else they may involve, uh, when the Canadian government weighed in on that and participated in that, uh, we violated our own laws because of uh, uh, how our uh, Charter of Rights uh, interacts with it and other laws dealing with uh, young persons who are underage. So uh, when the Canadian government broke its own laws, uh, it's being held to account for it. And... um, I suggested it might be a legal, uh, a political problem rather than a legal one. I think that uh, the governments of the day were anxious, uh, and this is just a, a personal opinion. I, I could well be contradicted by somebody else, but mm-hmm. it seems to me, not only at the time, but very much in retrospect, that uh, there was a, how can I put it, it's like a rush to judgment. Uh, there, there, we, we saw the uh, terrorist menace, we saw uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, and since then other even worse organizations like ISIS rising and spreading terror around the globe. And there was a rush to sort of uh, strike back and uh, uh, and overcome them and suppress them. So uh, so we saw governments uh, taking action. The United States led that, and they were anxious to have coalition partners, and the, United States, the Canadian government participated in that more or less. They didn't go into uh, Iraq, but they did go into Afghanistan. And I think there was this overall sense of... Uh, Let's make a common, uh, a common cause together. Let's fight the good fight together, and let's go out and do it. And I, I think it was being caught up partly in that whole thing, that when, when he was uh, captured and then imprisoned in, in Guantanamo and interrogated, it just it was like a momentum. That's my sense of it. I, right. and, and, having, and if that's the case, then uh, it may well be the government sent its uh, agents, uh, its uh, police officers, law enforcement agents, and so forth, to to participate with the Americans in their process, to join in. But when they did that, they, 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 they became accountable for what they did. And the Supreme Court, as I understand it, and I haven't read the decision in detail, but uh, I, you probably are as much or more familiar than I am, but basically said that uh, that was an unfair process, and whatever the governments may choose to do, we're, we, we can't hold them accountable. We can hold our own people accountable. So they participated in, a, in, a, in an illegal, unfair process. That's the key to it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I understand that the judgment, uh, not the judgment, but the settlement that's being proposed now is essentially a direct result of that. It was almost as if day follows night. Once the, once the Supreme Court declared that the government's actions were yeah. unlawful. So it's a question of rule of law. That's the that's way I look at it. You talked about the momentum and getting caught up in the whole terrorism thing when this started 10 years ago or certainly uh, propelled itself to the forefront. Is that a defense in any way? Uh, Is that an excuse? For whom? For the Canadian government. Oh, I you know, we were, so. we're no, just no, following along. No, 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 I, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. uh, laws are laws. And uh, and uh, just as a, uh, an individual might say, well, I was motivated to do something. I knew it was illegal, but I was motivated by whatever right. reason. Uh, that's not typically a defense for an individual. It doesn't apply to governments either. I mean, uh, if, if, they've, uh, if they've got something which they know or ought to know that the law is, and they're doing something that uh, it, it violates that law, then they have to be held accountable. Uh, we understand that other nations had pulled their prisoners out. Right. Um, how does that uh, figure into this case? And again, I know this is a political question, but wouldn't that wouldn't that uh, be on uh, you know Canadian officials' radar? Everybody else is pulling out. Maybe we got to do the same. Well, I think you've just put your finger on the on the uh, on the point, uh, and I, and if I may say, it's a little self-serving, but I think it reinforces the point I've made that. 
um, where we saw other nations really trying to apply their rule of law mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, protect their their own citizens, not in the sense of condoning or, or approving of anything they've done, but saying these are our citizens, we're going to deal with our citizens in our laws in our countries, just as the United States claims to do for its own people. So we saw uh, Great Britain and other other uh, United Kingdom and other other countries doing exactly that. We didn't see the Canada, and, and I kind of think, and again, personal opinion, but it seems to reflect back on the United uh, on Canada's basically uh, the governments of the day and the officials of the day saying, "Well, we're just going to make nice and show that we're real, really uh, supportive of the United States, and we're, and we're just going to uh, let them have their way." But it, they do it at a price where they've ignored the rule of law. Does the U.S. have any responsibility here? Or because it's not their citizen, it's not their responsibility. Uh, interesting question. I, I don't know how broad that. That's that's a really broad question. One might ask the question of just how far the U.S. can cast its net and what kind of people it can rope in. And it does claim, as far as I can see, as a bystander in many areas, and not just in terms of uh, military and uh, and uh, you know combative activities, but tax laws and all kinds of other things. It seems to cast a very wide net around the world, claiming to enforce its laws of all kinds of things uh, on not only its own people around the world, but other people too. So I think that's very questionable. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, they've chosen to adopt a for- course of action, which um, I think we can, uh, in a neutral sort of way, say is highly controversial as to whether it's even lawful or not. But they chose this course of action. They chose to rope him in uh, as a, a, some sort of a combatant and say that he acted uh, unlawfully and uh, take measures against him. They're a sovereign state. Whether we approve or disapprove, and we have the right to say that, they have the, you know, as long as they're acting within their own sovereignty, we can't make them accountable for that. But what we can do is be accountable for our own actions as a country. Should uh, the country be mad because Cotter's getting the money, or should we be angry for the government at screwing this up in the first place? I think the latter, to be perfectly fair. Um, uh, there are people who will hold very uh, strong opinions and and with you know cause on both sides to, uh, as to whether he's a uh, a victim of a process or just a bad guy who deserves to be uh, roundly denounced and uh, and and punished for his you know alleged misconducts and so forth but but at the end of the day I think that you have to have a clear look at this and say this this is about a government doing something that our laws say are wrong. How do we know it? Because the Supreme Court of Canada said so. And yeah. I, so I, who am I to contradict the Supreme Court of Canada? Yeah. And and I, so I, that's where, for me, the buck ends there. The Supreme Court has spoken. Mm-hmm. They're the final arbiters of our law in our country and what our country, what we and our, and our and our government can do. So they said it was unlawful. So it should be accountable. There are other issues, though. I mean, you know, we know that there's an action brought by his. Uh, um, by by uh, certain American mm-hmm. uh, uh, citizens uh, to claim damages. They've got an, a, a judgment in the United States. They want to enforce it. That's an entirely separate issue. It is linked, or it has an interface with, with so any money Mr. Cutter may get. But Mr. Cutter is going to, if, if this is all true, and I expect it is true, that he's going to get some sort of a settlement, it's in relation to his rights being violated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I have to keep going back to this idea that we all live under a rule of law. That's the whole point. Everybody, and, and, and it's already good to talk about that at all times and say, oh, rule of law, rule of law. But, you know, it applies in the hard cases. At the times when it, it, 
people who are not our buddies, who are we disapprove of what they've done, they're as much entitled to the rule of law, for better or for worse, as mm-hmm. everybody. Because if it, otherwise, otherwise it's just an arbitrary thing. We'll apply the rule of law when it benefits our buddies, but mm-hmm. when we go against somebody we don't like, oh, well, forget it. That's not the rule of law. No, I agree. Uh, what would have happened if Canada had done the right thing and gone down and got him? Uh, well, I, 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 where would we be now? Would he, they would have brought him back up here. He would have served his time here. Then what? I, I presume. Um, well, if they hadn't uh, shared information, presumably there'd be no cause of action for uh, for implicating the Canadian government in oppressive circumstances there. So he may not have had any cause of action. Uh, and therefore, uh, no basis to build, uh, to have a settlement uh, um, f- for him from the government. Um, I presume that he would be uh, in uh, in Canada doing much as he's doing now, except uh, having been able to get on with that a long time ago. Uh, he's I mean he's grown up man. He's a man. He's and I must say from the news reports, I don't know him. I, I just know what I see in the press. He's renounced uh, that uh, that whole. Uh, past kind of uh, philosophy and behavior and, and terrorism, and he's renounced that. Uh, so, I mean, some people may be cynical and say Leopard doesn't change his spots, but, you know, he was, he was the son of, he was the juvenile son of a, of a, of a fellow who uh, apparently was a big Al-Qaeda yep. operative who got shot to death uh, by, in, uh, in, in course of action by... The family uh, spent time with Osama bin Laden. Yeah, exactly. But, you know... I mean, how, how, that's why we, we have separate laws for youths because we realize they're immature, yeah. they're impressionable, they can be led. I mean, just think about it in anybody's family. Just think about your, your kid. Think about your adolescent uh, kid. How much influence is, is that kid going to have from what you say and what you do in your family? Mm-hmm. Will the U.S. soldier's family see any of this money? That's a good question. I I don't know. The uh, basically, we have rules where if a judgment is uh, it rendered in another country, we have rules for bringing it to like outside that country. For example, in this case, there's a judgment in the United States against somebody who's a Canadian citizen. There are methods for then bringing it to our Canadian courts and asking our courts to uh, to enforce it. And our courts will look at that on a case by case basis and decide if it's a proper and fair thing. They'll be looking at whether the uh, the judgment was properly uh, given, uh, whether there was a fair process, whether and it has a lot to do with what they call comity, which is the idea of respecting each nation respects the other nation's laws and processes. So to a large extent, that's a big factor, but it's not decisive because sometimes we'll look at what goes on in another country and we'll say it didn't really seem to be fair. Or, uh, in, in, uh, in this case, it's a complicating factor because, as I understand it, um, and I may misunderstand it completely, but they have the civil judgment, that is, the family of the deceased American soldier have a, a civil judgment, and it's, it's in American numbers. You know, they're always astronomical compared to ours. It's like 134 million or something. You'd, you'd yeah. never see a number like that in Canada in your wildest technicolor dreams because they, they just get those numbers. But having said all that, uh, there's a complication because uh, I understand that he pleaded guilty uh, to a war crime, but that there's a motion now to set that aside on the grounds that it was under duress. So query what would happen. What will happen if it does get successfully set aside as far as this country is concerned? We, we can't make the Americans set aside theirs, but our ability to recognize the ability to that, if we set it aside in our country so our courts say we don't recognize that as valid, then it may underli- it might undermine the... Uh, the basis upon which the civil judgment was obtained in the state. So I think it's going to be a thorny, complicated uh, matter. I don't think it's a slam dunk on either side. Uh, it, either way, it won't change the position here, will it, at all? Of? 
of the judgment of ten million dollars and him no, receiving the money. No, that's a settlement, of course. That's, but but yeah. I, I don't think I don't think it will because that's as I said, narrowly looking at it, and I think you have to look at it narrowly. Why is that there? Because they say the Canadian government because his he was treated oppressively. And the Canadian government was a party to that oppressive treatment. It's 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 for that. It's it's not as a reward. God knows it's not a reward to him for whatever activities he did and how he got himself in in jeopardy and how he got captured and how he got hurt and how he. It's not it's not it's not about that. It's just saying you were a prisoner of the United States. You had to be treated properly. Whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, guilty or not, courts will figure that eventually. But in the meantime, you got to be treated properly. We have rules. And those rules were violated as far as Canadian standards are concerned. And while we can't make a, uh, other countries accountable, we can say our own government's got to be accountable. So it's a very narrow issue, and I don't think, it, I don't think it's going to have any effect on that. Uh, here's an interesting question from a listener. Uh, I'm not sure if this has been discussed yet. What if Cotter's grenade had killed a Canadian soldier? Will we we'd still be apologizing and paying him off? Well, that, that's, a, that's a mighty good uh, question, and I think the answer will be that if he was mistreated... Bear this in mind very, very clearly, that it's one thing to say you did or didn't do something wrong, and if you've done something wrong, there is a penalty to be imposed, and you've got to pay it, and so on and so forth. It's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to say, however, in the meantime, you are a prisoner, and uh, you get to be, uh, uh, you have to be treated properly according to our Canadian values, laws, and standards. So, so I think it may not have made a difference if it was a Canadian uh, uh, citizen who was a casualty of his alleged conduct, because it still will come down to, okay, we've caught you, now we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hold you to account uh, through a lawful process, but in the meantime, how are we treating you? So if we, if we hang you up by the thumbs and torture you with the electrodes, everybody immediately is going to say, well, that's wrong, that offends all of our laws and standards. So that's the thing that is... Yeah. is 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 that's the basis upon which we're saying there was a wrong done to you it doesn't mean that because a wrong was done to you we're validating any of the conduct that you've done or no. for which you were being held accountable jeffrey reed has been with us hamilton attorney the lawyer for the widow of the soldier that was killed by omar cotter has filed an application to see that money be given to to uh from cotter to uh the widow of the killed soldier and another injured soldier jeffrey thank you for the time as always much appreciated you're welcome scott have a beautiful afternoon and uh keep up the good work back at you you're listening to the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 chml I don't know if you've seen this video or not, but uh, CNN is under fire after it ran a piece uh, on the uh, Reddit user who made a wrestling anti-CNN gif that was tweeted by the president, retweeted by the president. Now, basically, in this video, uh, and it's an excerpt from something that Trump did uh, a few years ago uh, with uh, the World Wrestling... It's not Federation anymore, is it? World Wrestling, what is it? WWE now. Um, and uh, Trump was involved with that and this big thing with Vince McMahon, their, uh, you know, the guy that, that runs the, the whole thing. And, uh, you know, there was some sort of mock fight and Trump rolling around and beating the bejeebers out of some guy. So anyway, in this video, the creator uh, superimposed the CNN logo over the person's face that Trump was beating up. So, uh, you know, ha, 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 there's the little video of Trump rolling around a wrestling ring, outside a wrestling ring, beating the bejeebers out of a person with a CNN bubble instead of a head. So, uh, of course, the president retweets it. 
And then I guess CNN jumps on board and says they're not going to report the name of the user because he is a private citizen who has issued an extensive statement of apology. So, uh, you know, I guess this guy was doing this as a joke, so uh, went a little too far. And because he releases a statement of apology, CNN says they're not going to ID who the guy is. Then, following that statement, they said, quote, CNN reserves the right to publish his identity should any of that change. Immediately, social media blew up with, you know, this was media blackmail. They're telling this guy to stay in line, trying to suppress suppress his freedom of speech, or they will publish his identity. Uh, Is this a political issue? Is it an ethical issue? Let's bring in Simon Kiss, professor, uh, professor of journalism leadership, Wilfrid Laurier University, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Simon. How are you today? Just fine, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to join us. What is your take on all of this, Simon? This is really weird. It's all just weird. I mean, the underlying tweet is weird. Uh, the um, uh, CNN's obsession with finding who tweeted it, uh, uh, who made the tweet, uh, the meme is weird. The president's obsession with uh, uh, Twitter is weird. It's just, it's just, it's all weird. What about the public's reaction to the whole thing? Is that weird, too? I think it is because I, I, I'm looking at this the same way. I, I'm thinking, well, uh, there isn't, you, you know, this doesn't actually smell like roses. There, this, this isn't right, but it just seems very bizarre. Yeah, it's it's really baffling. I mean, I get when people, I, I sort of get when people have an attachment to uh, a politician, then they won't take kindly to kind of attacks on uh, on on him or her, right? So I get why people want to rush uh, to Trump's um, or the, the defense of one of Trump's supporters when he, when he gets into a kind of a controversy with, um, uh, uh, with CNN. That's just partisanship. That's just politics. But uh, it, it still is, it, you know, as you say, it's, it's also just weird that people are getting so, so obsessed with this. I mean, and, and to, to say that CNN is, is kind of blackmailing this person, you know, he issued his apology before CNN published the story. So, I, I I find that a little bit tough to believe. Uh, what do you find tough to believe? Uh, restate that. What 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 doesn't jive with you here? Well, so there's people are saying that CNN is is kind of blackmailing this person into silence. But the person before CNN ever published its story, uh, I think if I read the timeline correctly, um, uh, the person had already. Uh, uh, issued an apology and, and mm. uh, taken down, deleted their post. So first they did the apology and deleted their post. Then uh, CNN published the story. So it uh, doesn't really seem like the sequence of, of events uh, of, of a blackmail to me. Uh, so is this more a question of politics than it is of ethics? I mean, what's the difference? I mean, I think this is kind of both. <laughs> I mean, I, I think what this really is, is this is just evidence of how weird and disconnected from reality our system of talking about politics has become. Um, you know, people can sort of express whatever half-baked thoughts they have, and the President of the United States picks it up because he likes half-baked thoughts, and pretty soon you've got 33 million people kind of excited about it, and then you know, and then the media, or members of, 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 of the journalism profession, are kind of caught monitoring this to and fro of, uh, of of politicians and their supporters, and then they wade in and 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 events, half baked events, half baked ideas on social media become 
stories in in legacy media. And now we're so, talking about it. And now and now you and I are talking about it. So I'm. It's, it's weird. It's all just weird. You know. And you know, two days ago, North Korea launched an ICBM uh, into the South Pacific that's potentially capable of hitting Anchorage, Alaska. So. You know, there's real things going on in the world that people should probably be concerned about, but here we are talking about um, uh, uh, fake memes retweeted by the President of the United States. What does this do for CNN and its brand? Oh, God, let's, let's you know, you know, CNN wants to portray, it's trying to portray itself as, as um, somewhat of a victim here and, and as, as uh, doing its journalistic duty, but let's be absolutely clear. Uh, you know, and they, and they were complaining about the underlying meme that the president had retweeted it and that, uh, you know, this was, you know, the president uh, fomenting um, attacks on the press. Let's be clear. Trump and everything affiliated with Trump's agenda and his supporters has been absolute gold for all of the legacy media. Yeah. Um, right through the campaign, uh, everything ridiculous that he says and does is is pure gold for the media. So I, I, you know, I'm not sitting here shedding tears for CNN. I mean, they can defend themselves very, very well. They're doing that uh, and they're making a handsome profit while they're doing it. Uh, are they, though? Is this hurting them in the end? I mean, a lot of people are questioning the credibility of CNN. I remember watching the election results, the U.S. election results. I'm, I'm going back and forth from CNN to NBC to ABC and then Canadian news coverage. And it seemed that the Canadian news coverage was more accurate than what the CNN uh, coverage was. They were declaring a winner much long before uh, CNN was. Is, is there an issue here? Have they got a huge credibility problem in the U.S.? I, th- I think many, much of the legacy media has a huge credibility problem, not just CNN. Uh, specifically, uh, you know, the mis, the overestimation of the support for Hillary Clinton on election day. I mean, that was, that was, um, a lot of people had that problem, uh, including pollsters, not just journalists. That was a really kind of deep structural kind of mistake. Um, they have longstanding kind of credibility problems, but uh, you know, from a, the perspective of the bottom line, let's be clear, CNN did very, very well with having Donald Trump as candidate for, for the presidency. They made a lot of money off of his debates, off of his um, appearances, and off of his outrageous statements, and they still are. So wh- where do... Uh, if I, sorry, if I may, and it's also just at a raw sort of a daily work uh, perspective of journalists, it makes their jobs very easy. All they have to do is sort of... yeah. Follow yes, a Twitter watch, feed. Watch, watch what Trump is tweet tweets and 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 gin up uh, two hundred and fifty words for a story, sort of commenting on on uh, pointing out the latest outrageous thing he says. Uh, w- when did CNN lose it? When did they start to go south? Because when they first started, they seemed or appeared to have more credibility than they do now. CNN has been suffering from particularly from the rise of more ideologically uh, um, committed. 24-hour news outlets, primarily first Fox News and then uh, MSNBC. Uh, the president retweeting this, uh, how does that add to the discussion and, and, and fuel the whole thing? I mean, he, he has to know this is going to help his, his case against CNN. I mean, this, this, this is the story. This makes the story. I mean, it wasn't, this never would have been anything until the, the president retweeted it. I mean... Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and until until that happened, this would have just um, uh, stayed in the backwaters of the internet. Where is this going? Do you think? More I don't th- think. 
this won't have legs. I mean, this will be uh, overshadowed in the next 24 hours by a big summit of the G20. Trump is going to uh, France and Poland, where he'll probably uh, offend uh, somebody somehow. Uh, and um, uh, I, I think the media will probably move on until the next outrageous thing that Trump says or does. Simon Kiss has been with us, professor of journalism, leadership, Wilfrid Laurier University. Simon, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. Thank you for the time. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, of course. Uh, Michael Tobe, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper and political pundit. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Is it sure. me or is this a non-story, the whole CNN thing? Uh, is this an ethical issue? Is this a political issue? Well, I wouldn't say it's just you, but if you want to make it that way, that's fine. Um, I would actually, all kidding aside, I would say that actually it is an interesting story. I wouldn't call it necessarily the biggest story of the week. I mean, we have issues dealing with uh, North Korean ballistic missiles. We have Omar Khadr on our side of the fence. So it's interesting that this has kind of fit its way into the political wheel, so to speak. But I think it became just fascinating when Donald Trump retweeted this this strange little video, which ha- was taken from an old uh, episode, or basically an old WrestleMania, the pro wrestling organization for the uh, WWE, a number of years ago, where you actually see that Donald Trump, who was involved in a match many years ago, long before he became president and long before he ever ran for politics, and you see him basically clotheslining what people are looking at on the video is an image of someone with a, a CNN image over their head. That's actually the owner of uh, World Wrestling Entertainment, Vincent McMahon. And for that reason, it's, it's actually become very fascinating that people kind of missed where it came from and what it was about. And they started to sort of talk about the issue of why would Donald Trump retweet something like this and how offensive it was when I think it's kind of fascinating to note that I think most people, A, did not realize that Donald Trump had been associated with the WWE or at a WrestleMania, and B, where the actual video came from in the first place. However, as, as we're probably going to talk about, CNN, which has had sort of a, a difficult media week in the past little while, based on the fact that uh, James O'Keefe and Project Veritas have sort of shown in their own little expose certain clips and discussions and interviews which seem to put the whole discussion of Donald Trump and possible relations or co-relations with Russia in some doubt, at least in the way this media organization has been portraying it nonstop, they basically were on a mission to sort of change their image, and I think it has actually backfired to some degree. Mm, man. All right, let's move on to North Korea. Uh, obviously, uh, Kim Jong-un uh, launches this missile uh, July 4th. Uh, he, you know, he's pretty much doing the happy dance over there, uh, thinking yeah. anything we can do to antagonize the United States is a good thing. Donald Trump uh, tweets, North Korea has just launched another missile. Does this guy have anything better to do with his life? For years, we have ignored Northern Korea or refused to give them any sort of acknowledgement. What does this say? Well, I mean, look, even though obviously it's not the most articulate tweet or piece of literature you're ever going to read in your life, Donald Trump's basic tweet is quite right. You would think that North Korea would have better things to do with its time, and that especially that's directed at its dictator of a leader, Kim Jong-un. But at the same time, we have to be realistic. I mean, the history of North Korea has been very militaristic. This is what they've been sort of doing, and they have been testing ballistic missiles and had a nuclear program for many, many years. 
There were books that came out as late as, I think, about 10 or 15 years ago, revealing the inner workings or what was suspected to be the inner workings of North Korea when it went in that direction. But what we've normally seen when they've had missile tests, which have usually gone through the Sea of Japan, has been failure after failure. However, it now appears in just the, the last little bit or this most recent ballistic missile, missile test, it now appears that the North Koreans have somehow successfully created a nuclear missile, which is far better than anything they've ever tested before. And naturally for the West and for people like U.S. President Donald Trump, this is a frustrating situation because they want to try to you know, basically cool off the North Korean jets, so to speak, and get them to stop doing things like this. But they have a bit of a, a quandary at hand, which is that China, which is North Korea's biggest ally and trading partner, who's had a bit of a, bit of a dicey relationship with the North Korean government over the past couple years, mostly due to the nuclear testing, or at least that's what we gather from news reports, the Chinese have basically, in recent discussions with U.S. state officials and directly with the Chinese premier meeting, President Trump, have sort of insinuated that, well, you know, we don't have the influential hand over North Korea that we did years ago. This causes a major problem for the world and, more specifically, for countries like South Korea and Japan, which are geographically right in the way of any sort of quote-unquote success that the North Korean nuclear missile program actually has. So what we gather from this is obviously that Trump's attention will be squarely focused on North Korea even more than it has been the past six months. And while certainly we're not heading into the direction of, say, World War III, as some people are suspecting, it is highly problematic that the North Koreans, A, have a better ballistic missile than they've ever had before, and B, that they are seemingly getting closer to their ultimate target, which is to have a nuclear missile hit some part of the United States or North America in general. Uh, I can't let you go without uh, getting your impression. Obviously, G20, uh, a lot of chatter about uh, Putin and Trump's meeting yep. at the end of the week. Will anything come of this? How does Trump ride this fence, especially after the, the ramblings you know, of the election campaign and, and, and the supposed bromance? How does he ride this fence? How does he straddle the fence? Well, it's going to be one of the most interesting bilaterals between two political leaders you're probably ever going to see in your lifetime, only because, unfortunately, the mainstream media, or just the media in general, has really been saber-rattling in terms of what this is going to involve, what they're going to discuss behind closed doors, etc. The nature of bilateral, Scott, and, you know, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who I work for, obviously was involved in them, is that the discussions are usually done behind closed doors, and the contents of their discussion are not typically revealed, unless someone feels like leaking it, which has happened in the past, not more specifically oriented towards Canada, but towards other world leaders, and the U.S. has had that issue in the past before. In this case, I think that Trump and Putin probably will have, I wouldn't say necessarily a volatile or hot-leveled meeting, but if it is to believe that there is a break between Donald Trump and Russia in terms of him, either he or his campaign staff or his political staff having nothing to do with Russia, specifically that being ambassador, other political officials, etc. This means that 
Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, who are both pretty frank individuals overall, even behind closed doors, can maybe have an open and honest meeting about, you know, trying to find a way to possibly work together to fight terrorism, to fight groups like ISIS, who have targeted both the U.S. and Russia in different ways. The U.S. we obviously specifically know, and Russia recently, you know, a few months ago had a plane that was actually targeted and knocked out by ISIS, and that happened late last year. There are certainly things the two leaders can discuss and potentially agree on, But I think no matter what, there are obviously going to be elements of the media, and CNN is obviously a prime candidate for it, who are going to specifically say that, well, there's always been this hint or this dark cloud of controversy between Trump and Russia. What in heaven's name could they be talking about in private? Whereas most likely, since the connection between Donald Trump and Russia seems to be non-existent, with, with obviously the, the one difference being that Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election is now sort of understood by organizations such as the CIA, FBI, and various politicians from different political leanings. Other than that, I don't think you're going to see anything wild happening here except a bilateral where they sort of reach a conclusion to have common causes. How do we fight things specifically related to terrorism, security, safety of our nations, etc.? And if that's the best thing that comes out of it, or even the only thing that comes out of it, they'll probably both look at it as somewhat of a success. The only unfortunate trick to it is there are many, say, small-c conservatives like myself who don't trust anything that Vladimir Putin does or, any, or much of anything that Russia does. So they're going to be worried about what could be possibly have been said behind closed doors. But whether we'll ever find out specifically what was discussed, I, I have my doubts strongly. However, the Trump White House has suffered badly from leaks in the past six months, so I guess anything is possible. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.